Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Bar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Enslicht. Mickey, is it true that our Twitter account was canceled for being too woke? Um, that is a very, very good question, uh, because some of our listeners might <laughs> uh, be aware that we no longer have a Twitter presence. Uh, the, the podcast... Uh, Twitter, uh, our Twitter account is has been disabled, and uh, it must be because we said something egregious and terrible. Um, and this is actually, I, I think we we're just canceled. I, I think, I think that's it, right, Joel? Yeah, that's right. There, uh, we've been frantically trying to appeal, but uh, so far it's just like shouting into the void, right? That's right. Despite us saying we are reasonable, normal people, I, I think at one point, you know. Uh, in a truly one-way exchange, because Twitter is not responding at all, I even pulled rank, saying, "We are U of T tenured professors. God damn it! I mean, tenured. Should... Okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you should let us back on Twitter, um, but uh, to no avail. We uh, we are still not back on. Um, so, would would you like to explain what actually happened to our Twitter account? Yes, I, you know. It would be so much better if we actually got banned or, uh, you know, for some, for something we said or, 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 you know, some crime. But it was the most benign reason and it's pure idiocy on my part. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, last episode was our 50th. Uh, episode, and we, we thought we'd celebrate. And it just so happened that we had this amazing uh, graphic designer, branding guru named uh, Olga Pope from Linehouse London, who created this wonderful artwork for us. We've got a, you know a new logo, new artwork, uh, cover art for uh, for the podcast. We also have beautiful Twitter art. Um, so our logo is going to be really, really different. I was really excited for that. And, you know, you tasked me, <laughs> a faithful decision on your part to task me with updating the Twitter account. And I went about this, started doing it. And then, you know, it went to the edit button. I saw, oh, the birthday was left blank. And it's our 50th anniversary. I mean, and, you know, we have been around since May 2018. So I figured I'd put in, and I looked up the first, our first episode, and I got the correct birthday. And as soon as I put in whatever it was, early May 2018, as soon as I plus, pressed the, you know, submit button, we were locked out of the account. And we had this ominous message saying, you've been locked out because one needs to be 13 years old to have a Twitter account. And since we're only two, um, we are, you know, breaking the rules and out of Twitter, uh, perhaps forever. I'm not sure. Uh, so uh, we've been trying to uh, appeal this for, for, for over a week now. So really the takeaway here is that this is my fault for going on vacation to a place with bad internet and leaving you in charge. Is that, would you say that's a fair summary? I, that's a fair summary. You should not have left me in charge because you asked me to do a bunch of other things. I don't think I fucked anything up, but uh, I wasn't nearly as adept at, uh, as you were. And you, 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 know, you even added JavaScript to, uh, to our, to our fourbeers.com website. You added a bunch of cool things. Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely go check out the website. It looks really nice. Again, this is all thanks to Olga, who did amazing work for us. And, uh, yeah, take a look. It, um, I think it looks fantastic. And sooner or later, Twitter has to let us back into our account because we both, uh, verified that we are, in fact, hella old. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they have to get around to it eventually, right? I would think so. I mean, I, I, I am banking on the tenured UOT professor to, to open some doors. <laughs> yeah, that definitely is going to get them 
Got to get them moving their asses. Uh, so it is true, though, that we were described as too woke in a three-star iTunes review that we received in the last month, um, where SNZ underscore 86 accuses us of being overly credulous. This is not a quote. This is just my paraphrase of research purporting to show uh, racial bias. So um, I, I don't know that I've ever been accused of being too woke before. Mickey, have you? Never, never in my wildest dreams would I think that anyone would accuse me of being too woke. And at first, I, I, I took it as an insult, of course. But then I realized we've also received um, feedback, I, you know, that we're too conservative, that, you know, our, our views are not acceptable in, in certain company. So the fact that we're getting critiqued on both sides, to me, says, you know, suggests we're doing something right. We're threading the needle here, baby. Our goal is to be disliked by everybody, in fact. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're, we're certainly, I think, uh, uh, doing that. Um, but that was hilarious. You know, too woke. Never, never my wildest imagination. So, uh, this episode, we had been actually planning to talk about this topic for a while. And then wouldn't you know it, uh, Harper's came along and scooped us with, uh, an open letter entitled a letter on justice and open debate. So, uh, briefly, what we had wanted to talk about was the idea of orthodoxy and particularly orthodoxy on the left, whether in fact it's true that there's been a narrowing of acceptable opinions, um, consequently a larger set of things that you might get in trouble for or worry about talking about publicly. Um, and we had sort of been kicking around the idea of doing this episode and we kind of hadn't gotten around to it just due to our schedules. And then this open letter came out July 7th and, uh, you know, sort of stole our thunder a little bit. So thanks a lot, fucking Harpers. But, um, but anyway, it is a, it's a, it, a useful summary, I think of, of some of what we wanted to talk about. Um, so this is an open letter. As I said, there's numerous luminaries whose names are attached to this. Uh, Noam Chomsky is one. Margaret Atwood is one. Uh, Wynton Marsalis, uh, Atul Gawande, a whole host of other people. Um, and uh, this open letter, it's called A Letter on Justice and Open Debate. Um, I would characterize the core claim uh, this way. This is a, a quote I'm reading now from the letter. The free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. An intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. So, end quote. Mickey, what do you make of that claim? Um, well... I mean, it's really hard to kind of evaluate it now because there's so many things have been written about the actual letter itself. But when I first saw it, um, it struck me as like anodyne. It struck me as, yeah, of course. I mean, uh, I think a liberal society needs, you know, open debate. And it's unhealthy for society to jump too quickly to orthodox views, to, 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 to quickly, without much debate, to, to quickly say this is the correct opinion, and then to be, as they as they they write in the letter, morally certain that they are correct. So, on its face, I was I thought this was unobjectionable. I also thought um, they had a really wide assortment of people, um, you know, many who are you know uh, quite famous and well known, and that is actually why they were able, even able to 
put sign their name to it because they're powerful and famous. Uh, they're not so worried about being canceled, uh, being criticized. I mean, Salman Rushdie, uh, you know, uh, uh, signed this. He had a fatwa against him uh, a, a couple of decades ago, so he he knows um, a little bit about uh, you know writing uh, things that are unpopular in certain circles and the repercussions of it. So um, yeah, I, at first I thought it was you know pretty bland and 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 like self evident, and I was surprised at the reaction. Yeah, so how would you characterize the reaction? Um, I mean, I should say I'm surprised, but at the same time, you know, should we be? I think you had, uh, to some extent, uh, I don't want to say a knee-jerk reaction, but you had a reaction of these are just powerful people trying to defend their own points of view. They're trying to protect their own privilege and power, and they are upset that uh, opinions are becoming democratized. They're upset that... Um, you know, pe people's power is being, you know, uh, called and, and saying, you know, this opinion, or, you know, what you're saying is is not worthy despite you having power and how dare you try to stifle, uh, you know, or quash what I'm trying to say. So I think the, the reaction was this is just a bunch of powerful people, you know, doing what powerful people do. Um, I think that was at least one reaction that there were other more nuanced ones, but that, that was certainly one of them. I thought that particularly um, the critique that says like, yeah, these are just powerful people. Um, and they don't like to be criticized was was pretty transparently bad, right? Because these are the people who are in a position to say this stuff. If they're right, and in some institutions on the left, you get in trouble for having these kinds of beliefs, well, then the people who are in a more vulnerable position aren't going to speak up, right? Because they should worry about getting fired. So who's going to speak up? The people who are harder to fire. And that just seemed like so obvious that if you're missing that, it's like, uh, some real powerful motivated reasoning or, or like, you know, a reluctance to really like engage with the arguments or something. So anyway, I wrote a quick Twitter thread about that, like nothing major, you know, majorly controversial seemed like pretty, like you said, anodyne to me. And I got, I don't want to exaggerate, but like a couple DMs from people reaching out being like, thanks for saying that I would have liked to say something similar, but I didn't feel comfortable doing it. And these are academics, um, people who are pre-tenure or uh, not tenure track. And I, to, to me, this speaks to the sense in which I care about this, which is that within academia, there is a lot of people in precarious positions. They're looking for a job. Um, they're trying to get tenure. Uh, they're lectures on term contracts. And for those people being seen to endorse an unpopular opinion could have real career consequences. And I think academics in general seem to think that it's part of our job to have unpopular opinions. And if we create an environment in which people don't feel comfortable saying something that contradicts the party line, that's a problem, isn't it? Yeah, I, I agree. I, mean, I think the, the um, this experience that you're recounting of people privately DMing you, emailing you, um, I think is one that's that's shared by by a wide number of people who um, you know, you know the, the pattern is as such you know such, such as what you had. You might express an opinion. You have the courage to express an, an, an opinion, um, and then other people say, I, "I'm 
thank you so much for speaking up because I I, I don't have the you know the I couldn't do it. Um, I don't I, I wouldn't have uh, said anything about the Harper's Letter because at this point I'm like tired of the getting the clapbacks. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's a common thing, and I think I think it's dangerous when you have um, an orthodox opinion that forms rather quickly, yet it's only orthodox because people are afraid of speaking against the orthodoxy, of, 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 you know, speaking up a heterodox view. Um, it'd be one thing, you know, if there's, a, you know, an orthodox view and a view that there's, you know, large consensus on and um, people, you know, the majority more or less agrees. Um, but it's very hard to tell in the current climate whether that's the case or whether, in fact, there is this, you know, con- what appears to be a consensus view, but in actuality, it's a, a view held by a loud minority um, who are very critical of those who do not agree with them, um, and then other people, you know, run afraid. So then you have, like, a public face that's very, very different than than a person's private face. And again, I've had enough of these conversations myself that I, I'm sensing that there's this duality going on now. There's enough uh, uh, you know, doublespeak. I- I'm saying one thing on Twitter or social media or email. I'm saying the words that I need to say t- t- to get myself out of trouble or to at least not be seen as, uh, you know, being a troublemaker. But in, in-, in reality, in private, I'm- I'm- I-, I think something altogether different. And I think that's a really dangerous, dangerous place to be in. So I guess there's a, a few kind of explanations for this, right? So one could be, like I've said, um, there's people who like really do fear for for their jobs. And, you know, when you're trying to get hired, uh, you're trying to get tenure, um, it just naturally makes you worried about uh, pissing somebody off. Right. So there's there's that. Um, and then there's, let's say you have tenure as, you know, both of us do. There's a kind of like informal social sanctions that's like, well, people might think bad things about me. I might lose friends. I might be ostracized, uh, et cetera. And then there's a third thing, which I don't think, you know, gets considered enough, which is that you generally believe in the goals or or your interpretation behind whatever point of view is being advocated. And you just go along sort of to be nice. And because it's, you know, easier than than saying no or or being argumentative, right? So like this struck me in the context of um there's a, a this is all open letters. I, I think maybe the solution is people just stop fucking writing open letters. But there's a Princeton open letter um addressing the problems of racism on Princeton's campus. And one of the things that it demands is that there be a university committee to review people's research for racism and to sanction them if their research is found to be racist. Now that, like, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that's fucking batshit, right? Like, we have academic freedom for a reason. Uh, What is the definition of racism? How broadly is this going to be applied? What are the sanctions going to be? It just is, it's it's unworkable, right? Um, Lots of people signed onto this letter, and I I checked, and I'm not going to, like, call anybody out by name, but people who I know and like in the psych department, for example. Um, And I was like, man, like, how... Who's signing on to this like fucking crazy demand? And I just read a thing today. So uh, the journalist Connor Friedersdorf actually contacted signatories to the letter and was like, well, really? Like, how do you justify this? Like, th- about that particular demand. 
And when he got responses, many of the responses said like, oh, yeah, no, I don't I don't support that at all. And I don't think that has any chance of happening. But it just generally endorsed the idea that racism is bad and we should be hiring more, you know, non-white faculty members. Right. So in a very vague way, yeah, I'm behind the general principles. But yeah, no, this 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 thing strikes me as crazy, too. Um, And tellingly, not all of those people want to go on the record, uh, which is interesting. But like, is there some degree of that? Is it like somebody makes this really provocative out there statement and you're like, yeah, no, that doesn't seem right. But I agree with the general idea. So I'll just kind of be supportive because, you know, I don't want to be that naysayer who's like, you know, not signing on to the anti-racism letter. Uh, That's a really interesting point. So this is, yeah, that's a much more subtle point um, because it suggests that uh, you kind of go along because you haven't thought it totally through, but it aligns more or less with your values and you're just like, fine. But that, I mean, that's fine. P- people can be la- you know, lazy if they want to be. Uh, by that, by lazy, I mean here, not really thinking through the problem. That's the prerogative. Um, but it becomes a problem when, you know, um, it then appears like there is this consensus of people who agree with a certain thing. And then when you have maybe more ornery people. So you, you mentioned this once, I think, one of our early, early episodes, that the people who end up speaking out uh, about these things are dispositionally, you know, for lack of a better word, they're jackasses. You know, they're people who are difficult. Uh, they, they don't mind being difficult. They don't mind being criticized. Maybe we're, maybe we're one of them uh, or some of them. I'm not sure. Um, um, and, um, uh, and then it, it, it appears like, you know, all the people who are kind of speaking up are actually assholes, but it's, it's selected for that to begin with um, because it's so hard to actually dissent. Um, but, you know, I, I really like your opinion because, you know, it, it, it it resonates with me because there's an example that, that, that comes to mind very readily for me right now. And I think we've spoken about this as well uh, in, in, a, in a, few, a number of episodes ago now. Um, this notion of, of uh, diversity statements in, in, in uh, academic hiring. So the idea here is because we want to diversify um, the faculty, one way we could do this, uh, or so the thinking goes, is that we get people to write diversity statements where they mention all the various things they've done to su- support diversity in their teaching and research. And um, the idea here is that we'll then be able to pick people who are I- ideologically aligned. But I think the real, I think at least, the real reason for doing this is a way, in a way, it's a, it's a tool of affirmative action, which I actually, uh, you know, uh, I'm in favor of. So to, to hire, you know, people who belong to certain racial, ethnic, uh, you know, sexual groups. Um, but why would you do that via a diversity statement? Because one could be, you know, a white, old, rich dude and write the most beautiful, eloquent diversity statement. And, you know, at least by the way a diversity statement might be evaluated, you would get hired, right? But now if, for example, just a hypothetical here, uh, UL, if one was to speak up um, and say, I'm for diversity hiring, but I don't think this is a good way of going about it, what well, you might receive criticism. You people might think that you are actually not in favor of uh, diversifying the faculty, um, and that you're secretly, you know, you're you're secretly a racist, for example. Yeah, no, I I think that's a that's a great great example. Like I'm extremely skeptical of the utility of diversity statements, and you know the funny thing is, like when I mention this to like non-white colleagues. Like their reaction to diversity statement is they start rolling their eyes. So I feel like 
the actual constituency that like likes diversity statements, it is a pretty small group, right? But you know, when it seems like everybody is excited about it and it's quote unquote best practices now, and like uh, the you know, applicants are probably going to have to write one for some other university if they don't write one for our job. So like, is it really a big deal for them to like just add in the thing that they already wrote? And then I'm like, well, this is not the hill that I want to die on, right? I don't feel like having a protracted fight where I like kick up a fuss and honestly probably lose the argument in order to like, you know, make this point that I don't think these diversity statements are, are worthwhile. And, you know, it's, it's funny that you, you said this, brought up this point again that we've talked about before about this is how you select for cranks because at Princeton, the person who like most loudly and publicly objected was a professor whose name I now forget who wrote this response. And the response was a bit cranky. Like he didn't like some black undergraduate advocacy group. And he referred to them as like a domestic terrorist organization, which is just like ridiculous hyperbole. Right. And like that's not a great advocate for the, you know, anti-letter side, but you know, these are the people who are now willing to, to make that sort of, take that sort of a public stand. Right. I'm sure there's lots of people who are skeptical about some element of it. Some of them are quoted in this, you know, uh, Friedersdorf piece that we will um, throw in the show notes, but they're not going to go public about it because like, really who needs the trouble, right? Like why not just sign the nice anti-racism letter and move on with your life? The problem is, yeah, twofold. One, people get the wrong impression about what has widespread support. And then two, it's a little bit of a foot in the door, right? So then when they come back and they're like, no, now we really want to do the committee and make no mistake. There are definitely some people who want the committee that reviews everybody's research for racism then you're in sort of a weaker position when you've already signed on to the letter advocating for the committee, right? Then it's hard to say like, oh, just kidding. I didn't mean it. I meant the other stuff. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Yoel. This uh, this cranky Princeton prof who kind of objected, wasn't there then a petition that he should somehow be punished or reprimanded and that the university president then either tweeted or said, we are going to in fact review you know, this professor's you know, case to see, you know, uh, whether there should be consequences, which were then quickly, you know, reversed. I mean, he, the president missed up. I'm not sure it was the president or someone else, but am I wrong? About yeah, that? no, that's, I, I think that's exactly right. So the university administration in response to backlash to this professor's criticism of the open letter said, yes, we're totally going to investigate this dude. And then there was a backlash to the backlash and they backed off of it. Um, so, so what do you make of this? Actually, this is maybe a good illustration of some people's retort here is like, well, name the people who have actually been canceled, right? Like, um, yeah, we, we haven't, you know, been talking about this in terms of cancel culture. So maybe it's better to say, name the people who've actually experienced professional consequences, right? If, if you have trouble coming up with any, does this illustrate that that maybe is not such a big problem? Right. I, well, first of all, I mean, I think there are, there's actually a website now, which I probably could find in a, in a couple of clicks, a list of people who have been canceled, famous and not so famous. Um, so I think this critique has been levied enough, uh, that no one's actually been canceled. Um, so there's clearly a list of people who have been, uh, critiqued and then have been fired or resigned. So James Bennett from the New York Times was the op-ed, uh, editor and he, um, resigned coincidentally, uh, shortly after this, you know, he allowed, uh, an op-ed to be written by Tom Cotton, a, a Republican senator who suggested that, um, the military should intervene in violent protests, an opinion that's actually 
pretty widely held in in, in the U.S. As, as even though I deeply disagree with it, he's one example. There's there's a whole there's so many example uh, so many examples now. Um, so, but by cancellation, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean fully fired or losing their job. It could also mean, you know, uh, I think cancellation means a lot of things. It could be just being a, a Twitter mob being angry with you for a day or two. And despite, you know, uh, how unpleasant those few days are, I think at some level you're like, you know, grow a thick skin and that's not so bad. I think when it becomes more serious and where your, your livelihood is on the line, that's where I, where, where I object. Um, I mean, do you take that argument seriously? No one's actually been canceled? Not particularly. I mean, like you said, uh, we'll, we'll put a link to um, this Twitter account that like kind of catalogs different instances of people experiencing professional consequences for um, expressing some point of view that's politically disagreeable to the left. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. So I think there's enough examples. And you know, you don't actually need to, you know, get the full professor fired in order to intimidate people who have less secure employment, I think is the point. If you're uh, a grad student, uh, if you're an untenured faculty member, if you're looking for a job, you know, it's it's reasonable to think that, yeah, you know, this this might have consequences for you. Uh, I want to push back a little bit on that because uh, in, prepar- in preparing for, for today, I came up of, you know, kind of my pros and cons of, let's say, um, we're trying to avoid cancel culture, but, you know, uh, orthodoxy uh, and kind of the narrowing of acceptable views. And uh, but before I do that, you know, we have forgotten a crucial element today here, you will. And oh, is, shit. We didn't talk <laughs> about the beer. When, we haven't talked about the beer, but we've been drinking already. I know, I know you and I have already been drinking. Yeah, um, no, we've, we've all been drinking. But are we, are we just going to stop in the middle and talk about the beer? Is that, yeah, is let's that just, what we I just, do? You know, I've, I've been holding on to this beer for a good month now. I've been saving it for this episode. So at least I want to give them a, a couple of props. Is that, is that kosher, Yoel? That, that is 100% kosher, but I find your language to be problematic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is, uh, I'm drinking something from Gillingham uh, Brewing Company from uh, right in uh, Prince Edward County in Ontario. Um, this is called a JW Citrus Pale Ale. Um, it's a beautiful uh, brewery in Prince Edward County and uh, a lovely service there. And they they come in these beautiful stubbies, 500 milliliter stubby bottles, which I like as well. And this has got like a, a you know citrus based hops, so it's really yummy. So I'm excited to drink it and uh, and to plug them a bit. Awesome, that looks very fancy. Um, I actually found a Flying Monkeys juicy ass IPA in my fridge. I'm not quite sure where it came from. I remember you were drinking this maybe in our episode with Keith. I think you you had this one. Is that right? Uh, I think we've had that a few times. Uh, uh, but yeah, so who knows? Over the, I, I've heard that people have been partying in your house while you were away. So it's possible that uh, the, the many people who visited your house have just left beer there. That's right. That's one of the benefits to having large parties when you're not at home. Extra booze. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, belatedly, Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. Okay, so I want to get back to um, this one thing that you said. There are all kinds of topics that we don't accept, in even in a, in a free society with, with strong uh, free speech norms. There are all kinds of topics that we, we do not accept. And, and in fact, if someone espoused it, um, a, a, such an opinion, we would be okay uh, if they you know, uh, uh, suffered consequences. Right. So, for example, um, uh, you and I are both Jewish and 
I don't think we'd be cool with with having a legitimate, you know, neo-Nazi, you know, Jew-hating neo-Nazi invited to campus. Um, I would be okay with that being protested, and I'd be okay with silencing that point of view. So we no longer are open to what what I would call, in this case, hate speech, right? Um, that's you know, in a purely free free society uh, with, with purely with purely free speech, we should be okay with that too. But we don't. We don't tolerate those those points of view. Um, and maybe something that's a little bit less controversial, or maybe not. Um, we don't. In academia, we wouldn't typically invite someone who had a really, really fringe opinion uh, on, let's say, climate science, right? I mean, it, there seems to be, there, there is some dissent, um, but there's pretty large consensus that uh, the, the earth is warming and that climate change is real and that a, a, a proportion of that is due to, uh, to, hum- to us, to humans, um, now, there are a small, small number of people who dissent with that, but we typically don't invite them to campuses and we don't allow them to speak because they're they're an opinion that's too fringe for us, right? So couldn't an argument be made that what's happening now is that the boundaries of what is acceptable, what is hateful, is changing, right? So now, for example... Um, it seems like I could be wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong about this. It seems like in the in the in the in the transgender uh, sphere, there's some consensus, more or less, that we we call people by their preferred pronouns, right? A trans woman, we call we refer to as she, uh, if that's how you know a she wants to be referred to as, um, and we kind of see it as dickish and impolite. Um, if not like, uh, you know, uh, we, we would call someone bigoted if they didn't respect, uh, you know, someone's pronouns, right? So isn't it possible that we're just, you know, this, this, this kind of a, 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 a conversation that's going on, an argument that's going on about new norms that are being established? And what we're witnessing now is just the, the fits and starts of, of new norms being established, and that's healthy. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be a valid argument if... Uh, the things that people were being sanctioned for were bigotry. Like, you know, I think trans people don't have uh, the right to live their lives the way they want, for example. Um, I don't think you should use somebody's chosen pronouns. I, to me, that is bigoted. Um, but I don't think that anybody serious that that I'm aware of is making those sorts of arguments. So, like, I'm sure that there are some people on the right who say those sorts of things, but they're in not in any of the circles that I'm in. So what people are getting trouble in trouble for is saying stuff like, well, biological sex is a reality. Biological sex isn't just a social construct. And I think most people outside of a very small slice of uh, the world's population would be like, yeah, that's uncontroversial. Right. Um, or, or maybe folks are making an argument on one side of what I think is actually a genuinely difficult question of, for example, um, how much of an advantage do trans women have competing against biological females in sports? So I think that is to some degree a technical question that depends on the science. And it's also a question where we have to balance the interests of different groups, right? On the one hand, trans women who want to compete as women in sporting events. On the other hand, biological females who might be at a severe disadvantage to trans women athletes, right? And and that's there's 
anybody who says there's an easy answer to that question, I think hasn't thought through the issues enough. Um, and I think that we are prone to see the opinions of our group as being much more representative than they actually are. So let's say, for example, we're talking about um, our next hire. Um, we're talking about uh, trying to hire uh, a non-white candidate. And I stand up and I say, you know, I really think that we only want to take people's qualifications into account, not the race or ethnicity, uh, even if it results in a less diverse faculty. I think that's something where a lot of people would be like, whoa, that's kind of intense, right? That's an extreme view. Um, do you care to guess what percentage of U.S. adults agree with that, that employers should only take a person's qualifications into account, even if it leads to less diversity? Um, uh, 50%, 60%. 75, well, sorry, 74% agree with that statement. 54% of black people agree with that statement. Only 37% of black people agree that uh, an employer should take a person's race and ethnicity into account in addition to qualifications in order to increase diversity, right? So this view that to us in our kind of like narrow circles seems sort of extremely right-wing is in fact incredibly mainstream, right? Super majorities of Americans and even like comfortable majorities of racial minorities agree that an employer should not take race or ethnicity into account. And that seems a, like a problem. I mean, I, okay, so there's so much in there that I, 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 I unpack. Um, so let me get to your last point. So your last point, I mean, okay, sure. Um, uh, th there's a divergence between what's happening in, let's say, in this example, the hypothetical example in the academy um, versus what's happening, you know, let's say, in, in, in uh, you know, mainstream public opinion. But who says those things have to match? Right. Can't, can't, can't academia be the leading edge of opinion? Um, can't it be, look, this is what we've deemed uh, uh, to be a, a good opinion um, to, to achieve our goals, our values. And, and if, the, you know, uh, mainstream America or mainstream whatever country, Canada, um, doesn't agree, that's, that's fine. I think it's a problem if we say admission to this club of like researchers or academics, or maybe this applies to the media as well, like elite media requires adherence to a really exotic set of moral norms that most of the country does not agree with. I think at least that is something that we ought to examine very closely. And I think that it is not examined closely because it's, it's unsupportable. I think if you think about it closely, you just can't I, I don't want to say can't. It's very difficult to make a strong argument that's something that we should be requiring as like sort of the price of admission. I mean, okay, so, uh, you know, as you know, I'm playing devil, devil's advocate here, but I must admit, I've got John Jost in my ear, okay? So uh, about a year ago, I think we had him on the show and he made, uh, again, I'm, I, don't, I don't really believe this, but I think what he was saying is um, people on the left, liberals are more right, their opinions are cor are the correct ones, and so what if um, uh, the majority of Americans disagree, or of course conservatives disagree? You know, these are people who you know who are you know are smart for a living, and they've thought you know deeply about these issues, and this is what they deem to be correct. Um, so who cares if if if, if you know uh, uh, 
again, the majority of Americans does comes to a different uh, a di- has a different opinion about this 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 issue. Yeah, I I just think it shows a real lack of epistemic humility to say this belief system that's held by. Um, I really like this hidden tribes. Um, survey, which came out a couple years ago, uh, and they try and classify people's ideology in a more nuanced way than just like the left, right. And they call this worldview that, you know, we and most of our colleagues share the progressive activists worldview. Um, And progressive activists are unrepresentative of the population in lots of ways. They're uh, more educated, they're wider, uh, they're higher earning. They're about 8% of the US population, right? If you're like, well, you know, we really think that the views of this 8% are so much more likely to be correct than everybody else's views that we're willing to exclude people for not agreeing with this agenda. It's just a lot of confidence, you know, and is that warranted? Yeah, I mean that's a good that that, that is so much confidence, and and, and I guess it, it goes against my uh, my preference to have uh, uh, a wide assortment of opinions, uh, and then to choose among um, among the ones that I think will work. Um, you know, after trying even trying it in my mind, try, trying the opinion out of my mind, I want to be exposed to all different kinds of opinions, and then figure out what I think is best. And I definitely bristle when. Um, orthodoxy or consensus uh, 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 emerges too quickly. Uh, but, you know, again, wh- what, would you, what would John Joe say? <laughs> I think John Jost is 100% convinced that one point of view is right. And, you know, I guess you have to admire somebody's moral conviction. I can just never be that confident about anything. And historically, has it ever been the case that, like, any group was 100% right about anything? It, ju- it just seems uh, highly improbable. Yeah, yeah, it certainly does seem improbable. Um, so you all, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on time, and I wonder if we take a bit of a break um, and uh, quickly uh, drink a, a second beer. Let's do it. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So until recently, we were on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. If uh, we're quite lucky, by the time you listen to this, that account will be restored. We are still hoping that sooner or later, Twitter will get back to us and realize that we are not, in fact, two years old. So uh, in the meantime, if you want to contact us, send us an email at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Check out our website, fourbeers.com, where you can find all our episodes, including this one, and also uh, drop us a line. And uh, as we said before, the lovely new artwork there is currently 
courtesy of Olga Pope of Linehouse London. If you need any uh, design or branding work done, check them out, linehouse.london. Mickey, is there anything else that you would like to add? Uh, not much. I, 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 other than to kind of reiterate what you just said and to give Olga Pope so much props. I mean, she kind of snuck into our DMs. I, I, this is again where very bad wizards and us are kind of have this weird, this weird, uh, maybe they would say a parasitic relationship. Um, I think Olga designed, uh, some, a logo for a t-shirt of theirs. And I just loved it. I thought it was an awesome, uh, piece of art. And uh, on the podcast Twitter account, I was like, Olga, I love this. This is so cool. Just thinking that would be it. And then, you know, a day or two later, she emailed us with like a couple of mock-ups of new logos for us. And we were like, cool. Uh, how much do we owe you? And she's like, you know, I just like doing this. It's fun. I mean, she does have a business, so please, you know, go to her and, and, and give her money. Um, but uh, at least for us, she she was just like, you know, our gratitude was enough. And of course, that's plugging her now. Um, but we love the, the new logo. And I can't wait for you guys to see um, our new Twitter art uh, if one day we get back on Twitter. So thank you so much, Olga. We will make sure to plug you uh, uh, a few more times before we're done. That's right. It's going to be the podcast is going to be all plugs for Olga and Linehouse London. So um, before we get back to the plugging, uh, we are going to talk about beers. Thank you for the reminder. So I was I got so busy talking about free speech that I didn't have the chance to finish my beer. Hopefully Mickey's going to talk more and I'm going to have the chance to drink this and then I have a backup Stella has regenerated in my fridge. Just kidding. I, I actually went and bought some. Uh, so I, I do have a, a second beer lined up for when I finish this one. Mickey, what about you? Well, hold on. You know, it's possible that like the Stella is kind of like a sourdough starter. Like if you just let it die, the, the starter is going to die. But you need to like have like one there for it to become two and three and four. I can't over harvest it. You're totally right. You're totally right. Okay, so I'm, I'm leaving at least one in there and hoping that it will spawn new ones. Excellent. Um, so I'm drinking, uh, it's actually a, a light beer. This is uh, unusual for me. Um, it's, uh, it's from Henderson Brewing right here in downtown Toronto. Uh, it's called Picnic. And it is a beer that is only 3.5%. So this would be like a Budweiser, right? Isn't Budweiser super American beer? Very, very light. Um, but it's just like, you know, I, I, I call this... Uh, you know, water flavored, uh, beer flavored water. <laughs> uh, so uh, refreshing and light, uh, perfect for a hot uh, summer evening. So, Mickey, is it the case that because you were worried about saying the wrong thing, that you deliberately chose a weaker beer? <laughs> worried about saying the wrong thing. I was worried about being canceled. I was worried that if I, you know, uh, uh, didn't uh, promote this this kind of beer, people would be really, really upset with me. No, of course not. Um, but uh, I, I think you want to get at, you know, times where I felt uh, afraid um, to express myself. And I'm not going to lie. I feel it all the time. I feel it all the time. I, I'm not sure I have... I should feel that way. Um, I feel that my opinions are out of the mainstream. By mainstream, I mean academic mainstream. Um, I don't think it's out of the mainstream in in, in uh, the broader public. Um, 
as I've mentioned a number of times, I'm a, a liberal, as in the Liberal Party of Canada. I'm a member of the Liberal Party, and I vote for them, or the even further left-leaning party, the NDP, almost all the time. Yet, I do feel that some of my opinions on certain topics are out of step. So I might agree with progressives on like 40 out of 50 opinions, but I, I have some disagreements on, let's say, 2 out of 50. But yet, it's the two that make me sheepish. Um and that caused me concern, and I and I and I don't tend to to voice them. And I was reminded of this. Um, there's new a podcast that I want to plug. I believe it's called uh, "More of a Comment Than a Question." Um, that's run by two graduate students uh, at Berkeley who are very brave and give me the courage to um, to speak up myself. And they had a, an episode. Um, Responding to one of our former guests, James Heather wrote a a letter why he's leaving academia. And in that letter, he mentioned um, that he's not leaving academia because it's uh, it's too far on the left. Um, And he essentially said, you know, if you think academia is, you know, suffers from this cancel culture or is overly left, you're either not expressing yourself, you know, uh, well enough or deep down you're a racist. Um, and I, I really, really disagree with this, that view. I think uh, many of us, not just me, uh, feel somewhat stifled. Um, I feel like they can't fully express themselves uh, for fear of uh, repercussions. Um and it was these graduate students, you know, really kind of reminded me of what I what I said. I, I felt that I I was braver earlier in our podcast in the first, let's say, ten episodes than let's say our last ten episodes. Mostly because, you know, after expressing my opinions, I felt that I've received clapbacks and pushbacks, and that's maybe that's fine. Maybe like I need to have a thicker skin and um, not care too much about what like randos tell, you know talk about me on Twitter. But I'm not going to lie and say that it hasn't affected me. It definitely has affected me. You know, I'm curious. And we can cut this later if you don't want to leave it in. But what are some of these things that you feel like you would be stigmatized for saying? Uh, okay. Well, th- there are a few, and I'm glad that we have uh, we can edit this out if I if I feel uncomfortable later. Um, okay. Uh, you know, after the George Floyd horrific murder and the you know massive unrest that's still ongoing months later in the U.S. Um, there was a, a movement uh, that's still very vocal and around, um, you know, promoting the idea of either defunding the police or abolishing the police. So they, they have a, a you know, couple of slogans. One is uh, uh, abolish the police or one is defund the police. I think what they actually mean is um, you know, cut their funding by a certain amount. Okay, but some activists, let's say in Toronto, uh, activists want uh, the police services cut by fifty percent, and then to take that funding and and replace it with, you know, for example, social workers or mental health advocates or people who are better able to deal with some of the things that police shouldn't be dealing with. Um, and I'm, I really am down with that. Um, that to me uh, makes a boatload of sense. And uh, I'm okay with that. But when I first heard it, um, I was alarmed by uh, this notion of, uh, you know, defunding the police or abolishing the police altogether. And I, I, you know, if if I was, you know, free to speak my mind, I might have said, well, I'm not sure this is a good idea. But I saw numerous other people say that exact same thing. 
and get severely criticized, including by our good friends at Very Bad Wizards, who were quite upset at, um, I think, especially people in uh, the IDW, the Intellectual Dark Web, for uh, suggesting that, you know, uh, uh, defunding the police was a, was a stupid idea or a bad idea. Um, but nonetheless, I didn't feel safe to even, like, kind of put my toe out there and say, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this. This makes me a bit uncomfortable because... There might be problems with the police, but I also believe the police have an exceedingly hard job. And I'm glad they're around uh, because I've had to call the police a few times in my life. Um, and I'm glad they're around to, to, to help me feel safe. Yeah, that's that's so interesting to me because it illustrates a, a couple things. Like the first is, geez, being skeptical of police abolition is about the most mainstream position that you can imagine, right? So it's like, that's what I'm talking about, this like very, very rarefied set of moral norms where it might be seen as problematic to say, hey, you know, maybe abolishing the police is not a great idea. Um, and the second is that on a level where you're talking about people's day-to-day -day experience and not these like, moral abstract arguments that you have on Twitter, the details really matter. And it can both be true that people view the police as treating them unfairly, arbitrarily, and violently, and also really see the need for effective law enforcement. And there was a great story in the Washington Post about this that just talked about this these few blocks in Washington, D.C., where they've had just a really bad increase in violence and people who live on this block who are i think almost all black say both you know the cops don't treat us well don't respect us uh and they're never fucking there when actual crimes are happening right so it's like adding insult to injury and if you just naively say oh what we need to do is get rid of the cops or cut their budget in half and and then you don't do anything else right then you may just make the situation in those neighborhoods Worse. And most of the people, I should say, who like are pushing this, like just abolish the police line are not living in neighborhoods that are heavily affected by violence. Right. So it's kind of uh, a free moral belief in the sense that you're not really paying a personal price um, if that policy were to actually be implemented. Now, is that policy actually going to be implemented in many places? Not in many, you know, but uh, Minneapolis, for example, which has experienced an uptick in shootings and homicides. They are talking about abolishing the police department and replacing it with something else, TBD. Seattle is talking seriously about cutting their budget, I think, in half. And I think there's a lot to be said for, look, we want the cops to do everything. Right. We want them to show up to be social workers, uh, to be mediators in family disputes, um, to catch lost dogs, what have you. And for most of those things, you don't need somebody with a, with a gun to do that. Right. And could we divert some of the money that's currently going to enforcement and use it instead for prevention, uh, for community building? Yeah, absolutely. Right. But the key there is divert, not just cut. Right. And, and the fear is that you know, people may in kind of a blinding rush of moral certainty do the defunding part and then not do anything else. And I, I think that has a very high likelihood of making things worse. And so this is, I guess, something else that we wanted to get into eventually, which we might as well get into now, is that these debates do have real consequences, right? It's not just a question of um, an academic defense of uh, a 
abstract principle. It's that if we don't hear all sides, we're likely to make stupid decisions. Getting pushback from people who have a range of views makes us smarter, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I, you, you said this thing, I think, uh, on Twitter when you were um, – yeah, that tweet thread on the Harper's letter – you said you said that you know you know orthodoxy makes us dumber, um, and I think that's 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 absolutely true. We need the range of opinions to try them on. I try ideas on all the time. I've written I, I've tried ideas on even in papers. I, you know, I, I write a paper where I think there's a, a kernel of an idea there. I'm not fully fully even sure I totally buy it, but I want to just play with the idea, sit with the idea, like wear the idea a little bit, and then afterwards I'm like. I literally have a paper like this that's highly cited. I'm like, I'm not even trying to believe in that idea anymore. Um, but I think it's okay to try ideas on. Um, again, um, I'm not a free speech absolutist. I think there are some ideas that are completely off the table. We're not talking about those ideas. We're talking about other things. Um, you, you, things that I, that I think are in the range of acceptable ideas. Acceptable, you know, they're not hateful and not, you know, advocating violence. Violence. Um, so absolutely, I think we need a vibrant ecosphere of opinions that we sample from until we find the one that brings the best possible outcomes. And that only happens often through trial and error, through being exposed to the ideas. So if you quickly you know, narrow down to the idea, so abolish police or defund the police without hearing people push back, without fully entertaining what, you know, entertaining their pushback and listening to their pushback, um, then I, th- I think we're making bad decisions. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's foolish um, uh, uh, to, to, to do that. There's this interesting phenono- phenomenon that happened like around that. I associate this maybe unfairly with Robin D'Angelo and her white fragility book. And it was funny. I, I do think of this as a kind of an example of this dynamic of nobody wants to be the first is it, that book, you know, shot to the top of the bestseller list. People were recommending it. And I think lots of people, myself included, were like, God, this book seems sort of terrible in all sorts of ways. And I certainly wasn't going to go on Twitter and be like, let me tell you why white fragility sucks, right? Like, first of all, I have other things to do with my time and I don't want to have the argument and so on. And then eventually it was sort of like the dam broke and everybody was like, isn't this book terrible? And now I feel like it's a valid opinion. You know, you're not going to get canceled for being like white fragility is a terrible book. Right, exactly. It only takes the one influential person to like uh, to express him or herself. Um, but that's why you need. I mean, you do, you do need the cranks. You do. You do need the people who are willing to stand up against orthodoxy to take the flack. We need the Lee Justins in the world. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're they're willing to sometimes to start the conversation that everybody kind of would like to have, but nobody feels like they want to be the first person to say it. That's right. So another way in which, you know, this, um, you know, orthodoxy plays out, I'm seeing more and more, and tell me if, if you have the same opinion, is, okay, so for sure there is this uh, self-silencing, which we've talked about. I've talked about myself. I'm not wanting to express certain points of view for fear of, of being criticized. Um, but I'm seeing more. Maybe it's just a few small numbers and maybe it's not a real trend, but I'm seeing academics now self-silence via retracting their own papers. And retracting their own papers um, not necessarily because of errors that they or other people have identified. That happens all the time and that should happen. But also retracting because of the political ramifications of 
you know, what their papers, uh, the ramifications of of their actual paper. So, for example, I just saw today on Twitter. I'm barely on Twitter Twitter these days, but I saw something. Twitter just gives me this shit. It knows that I react to it. Um, there's a paper which I never would, you know, would think this is an interesting topic. I would never pursue this topic. But it was a a paper examining in a medical journal examining the relationship between certain forms of endometriosis, which I believe is a a condition that affects uh, the ovaries. Uh, women's ovaries. Um, so the con- a connection between endometriosis and attractiveness. And the scientists found that women who suffer from endometriosis tend to be more attractive. Um, and I, I think pretty much as soon as this was published, it met with all kinds of scorn and all kinds of criticism from the medical establishment. Because like, this is such a dumb question. There's so much we need to know about endometriosis. It, it, it affects women and it's, it, it's, it's a devastating disorder. Um, why are you examining, uh, uh, you know, attractiveness? So the authors, initiated a retraction of this paper, not because of its scientific merit or lack thereof, but because of the political backlash that it caused. Um, now, again, I don't think I'd ever pursue this question. I'm not sure what why you'd want to address this question, but the data are there. Um, you stand by the, the, the method by which you, you know, uh, you collected the data and the conclusions you're drawn. Maybe this, who knows, maybe this will, you know, lead to a breakthrough in understanding endometriosis and helping, you know, those who suffer from it. Uh, I don't see how that could be, for example. But nonetheless, it just seems odd to retract this paper. Um, I, you know, I didn't dig too deeply into this, but it just seems like this is someone who is acquiescing to, uh, you know, political correctness. Yeah, so this is like after the fact self-silencing. Uh so I I don't know this example. Um but you know the the really salient example of that um that uh you know, occurred a little longer ago was this PNAS paper about racial bias in shootings. Um where I think if we tried to rehash all the like statistical details here, it would be a long and very boring episode. Uh but Basically, this paper uh, overstated some of the conclusions, or maybe you could say misstated some of the conclusions in like the significance statement and I think the abstract. And that was pointed out, hey, you can't actually draw that conclusion from these data, and they actually issued a correction. Uh, now, it was described correctly in lots of other places in the paper, but there was some overclaiming going on. And fair enough, you know, the process worked, they corrected it. Uh, done deal, right? No. Then recently they retracted it. And their stated reason for retracting it is the wrong journalists are talking about this and mischaracterizing our findings, which, okay, I have somewhat complicated feelings about. Like, I do think that it would be a better world if PNAS papers didn't overclaim. I also think that if you retracted every overclaiming PNAS paper, there wouldn't be a lot left to the journal. Um, but I think most importantly, when you're talking about an issue as kind of with such real world importance, it's so important that we scientists be seen as giving an impartial and unbiased view of the evidence. And when you see this kind of a retraction, it can't help but appear to be flagrantly political because, of course, it is flagrantly political. The reason this paper is retracted is because politically it was disagreeable to people who made the authors' lives difficult enough that they finally decided, you know, what the hell, 
better to retract it. Now, this is a bit of mind reading on my part. I don't know any of the authors personally. I don't know what they were actually thinking, but that seems like a really plausible interpretation here. And if a third party who maybe doesn't share our politics looks at this and is like, look, you know, like you can't even publish these findings that don't agree with their orthodoxy, then you just lose all faith in the enterprise. And I think our credibility depends on being seen by policymakers and politicians as presenting an unbiased view of the evidence. And how are we going to do that if we keep going this way? So I'm glad you brought this up. So I spent like hours today, you know, going over this, this kind of incident, this, and maybe we'll have a, a whole episode on this at one point. Um, this incident with, uh, with Joseph Zario, uh, who's uh, one of the authors of, of, of this paper. Um, and I wonder though, if they understated some of their claims uh, in the retraction, because uh, apparently, uh, this is Wall Street Journal journalist um, who, in response to the retraction, said, because I cited this paper approvingly, the authors then retracted. Okay, which is essentially, I, I think, an, you know, you can interpret what you just said is, is essentially that. Um Joseph Zario then wrote a letter to a letter to the editor, uh, saying that is not in fact the case, because um, you know, a we sent you the paper, um, so we were happy for you to promote it, um, but in b it's actually because we no longer you know uh, can stand behind the science. So I think um, maybe the retraction didn't state you know, enough how they no longer are, are, are confident in their conclusions. It's a sense I got, at least from the letter that Joseph Zaria wrote to the Wall Street Journal. Um, hmm. Did it go into details about how so? Because from the rationale that I saw, it's really just about the interpretation, not that the data themselves were being questioned. I think the, you know, the Bayesian analysis done by these, there was a political scientist at, is it out of Princeton? Um, I'm forgetting now where. Uh, 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 Knox and, and Momolo, I believe, are the, the names of the authors. Um, I think, according to this critique, um, all the Cesario paper can say is the probability of being black or white given being shot. When in fact, what they want to be saying is what's the probability of being shot by police given being black or given being white? And they can't because they only have data on, on, on people who are shot. They don't have non-shooting data. Um, so I, I think it more deeply undermines their claim. Maybe we're getting too deep in the weeds here. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. We could keep the original version of it. But I remember you know, reading it being like, I also was puzzled by the retraction. I'm like, well, hold on, you're retracting it because, okay, you overstated. You, you admit that and you, and you apologize for that. But as you mentioned, many people overstate and we shouldn't be doing it. And, and let's, stop, let's all stop doing it, including, you know, yours truly. Um, but it seemed like they were really, you know, from their traction, at least, you know, upset at the way it was uh, being discussed in the media. Um, so I also got the sense this is a political retraction, but they're claiming otherwise now. Um, yeah, that's uh, maybe this is something that we need to tackle in depth in, in a future episode, because I, it sounds to me like what you're describing is just the uh, the overclaiming aspect, right? So they their statistics showed one thing, but sometimes when they were describing the results in words, uh, they reversed it. Uh, 
and you you actually can't draw that conclusion from the data. And I thought that's what the correction was supposed to address. Now, maybe there's more to the story. Regardless, you know, even if these flaws are real, if you have a literature on a fraught topic and you subject the papers showing a certain set of findings that you don't like to really rigorous scrutiny, and you don't subject the other papers to the same level of rigorous scrutiny, you're just mechanically going to end up with a biased literature, right? Because you're not going to find the errors that you like politically. And I think that is a real concern. Like, I think that in general, we could be a lot more rigorous about how we evaluate evidence. But I think that there's a real temptation to only critically evaluate those findings that you find politically disagreeable. You know, I, I agree absolutely with you. It seems like the politically palatable studies are, I don't want to say, big, I, I don't want to say are being given a pass, but they're not treated to the same level of scrutiny as the politically unpalatable ideas, um, which, I mean, maybe at some level that's okay, right? Because maybe, we, you know, we want... Ideas that you think are out there that are, you know, hard to believe ideas, and in this case, it's because of politics, you know, you know, should have really strong evidence. But because it's politics, it's, it's totally based on biased reasoning. It's not based on this being a really, really, um, you know, out there claim. So, for example, you know, when Daryl Bem, you know, purported to show evidence for uh, ESP, you know, strong claims deserve strong evidence. But like, it's not the case, you know, just because something is outside of what you consider politically acceptable doesn't mean it's a very outlandish claim. Right. Um, so if we had people willing to take the other side, right, who are really going to dig in tenaciously on the stuff that people on the left like and try and find flaws in that, then I would say, great, right? This is a, a system designed to ferret out problems in research. But if you're just doing that asymmetrically, which I think we really are in that position, but due to how homogenous we are politically as a field, then you just are going to end up with a politically biased literature. There's really, as far as I can tell, no way around it. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I said, and, and you well, didn't we get in trouble for having a guest that uh, essentially was accused of uh, shoddy journalism? Um, good, uh, but- good segue. <laughs> yes. So one of our... <laughs> One of our personal experiences with um, politically, I I think of it as politically motivated pushback or like you can't say that sort of thing was um, we had Jesse Single on as a guest. Uh, we had him on to talk about the IIT. It also happens that he's done a lot of writing about gender dysphoria and uh, trans issues. And in particular, he wrote a very long uh deeply researched and I thought very well-balanced piece in The Atlantic about uh, the issues around youth gender dysphoria, right? So your, let's say, eight-year-old boy comes to you and says, I feel like a girl. Uh, I, I feel like I'm trapped in a boy's body and I'm really a girl. And then what do you do, right? And it, I think this is like a very kind of difficult and obviously consequential question for any parent and obviously for the kid too. Um, it's There's a lot of hard issues involved in that, and we need a good understanding of the science around that. And Jesse wrote, I think, a very like good, well-balanced story about this. And because it 
did not entirely satisfy some transgender activists. He has become in certain parts of the internet, like just an evil person. Um, and the way that we got sucked into this actually is not when we had them on the podcast, but somewhat later, uh, somebody on psych Twitter posted a tweet somewhere along the lines of, uh, it really bumps me out that so many people are talking to Jesse single. Who's like such a bad person. And I think I'm the one who decided to get in there and be like, well, why do you say that? And it just turned into this kind of like mini blow up where in the end, a lot of the reaction that I got both publicly and, and privately was, that's not a question that you should ask, right? Like you shouldn't ask for evidence of that claim. You should just take that at face value. And to me, that seems like an alarming attitude for a scientist to have. I, to me, the guiding belief of science is that we don't take anybody's word for it and that asking for evidence is perfectly okay. Absolutely. And in fact, the, um, the motto of the oldest scientific society in Latin is nullius in verba, which means um, take nobody's word for it. Right? This is in stark contradiction to other epistemologies, for example, from religion, where every everything is about taking the word of of superiors, whether it be the Pope or or or, or, or the Bible or what have you. Um, science is all about you know trusting nobody, um, you know taking nobody's word for it and verifying. So you know you're asking for evidence is perfectly in line with what a scientist ought to be doing. And I too um, was taken aback that um, not just a small number of scientists uh, were agreeing that us asking for evidence of Jesse Single's transgressions was uh, too much, was too much emotional labor for them. Yeah, I do want to distinguish something that's a little bit subtle. I think when people talk about their personal experiences, that does count as evidence. And I forget whether we've talked about this or not. This is sounding kind of familiar, so maybe we have, right? So like, let's say a black person is like, I get hassled by the cops a lot. Then I think saying like, prove it, like A is kind of pointless because how are they going to do that? And B is kind of a dick move, right? But if somebody makes a claim like, um, this institution is rife with structural racism, then I think it's reasonable to say how so. And I think by the same in token, it's reasonable if somebody says, at least implicitly, we shouldn't be talking to this journalist because he's a bad person. Then I think it's reasonable to say, why do you say that? Um, this actually reminds me of uh, something that I've heard now called the identitarian defense. Uh, it's, this, I think, term coined by someone named Matt Brunig, who is... Um, seems to be a kind of in charge of some sort of uh, uh, organization that is fight, you know, fighting inequality, poverty, and welfare. So a, a progressive, at least in terms of his job. Um, and th this notion of identitarian defense is that privileged individuals should defer to the opinions and views of oppressed individuals, especially on topics relevant to those individuals' oppression. Um, so in, in, in this case... Um, we need to take the word of trans people, or I, I, I wouldn't even say that. We take the word of trans activists, or at least vocal trans activists, that in fact, Jesse Single is a transphobe. It doesn't matter what evidence is marshaled. Um, their word is enough. Um, and that seems to be a, a terrible move. 
Um, I mean, by that I mean, yes, um, there is such thing as lived experience. And I know that's kind of, you know, people are eye rolling when we even mentioned that. But yes, people have individual ex experiences that are meaningful or important, and we should pay attention to them. So for example, you and I are both Jewish. Um, and probably you want to talk to Jewish people about anti-Semitism. You might want to talk to them, you know, you know, what it feels like that, you know, certain, you know, celebrities right now are saying all kinds of anti-Semitic things that, you know, deeply troubles me. So Ice Cube, a dude I've been listening to nonstop on my, um, on my, on my playlist, uh, from some of his early hits in the nineties. Um, but he said some like, you know, crappy stuff about Jewish people, which, which I don't like. Um, so yes, you should listen, you know, you should at least hear me, listen to me. Um, but it doesn't mean I have the last word. It doesn't mean that when I say someone is anti-Semitic, you should, you know, 100% believe what I have to say, right? It's like, well, okay, I'm going to listen to him because he has experience with this, but let me look at the evidence as well. Let me, let me kind of try to weigh the evidence and maybe even up, up, you know, the, the weight of my evidence because I'm Jewish, but I don't have the final word. Um, uh, I think it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be where you give, you give like, you know, a group, a veto right, a veto vote on, um, you know, uh, on what, what is true and what is not true. Right. So I think there's this interesting rhetorical move that's made sometimes where if you don't do that, you don't give that kind of deference, then you are invalidating or maybe even invalidating the existence of that person. And that just doesn't seem right to me, right? We have to be able to have discussions about these difficult charged issues without immediately going to the nuclear option of like, you don't think I'm allowed to exist as a person. Like if I'm like, Mickey, you know, you write about these specific instances of anti-Semitism, but uh, I also think that, you know, most people don't hold anti-Semitic beliefs and that should count for something. You're not like, you know, you want me to disappear. You know, that doesn't... That's right. You're an anti-Semite, UL. Exactly. Self-loathing Jew. Self-hating Jew. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think that's that's great, a great way to end it. But uh, I have uh, one quote for you, and I, I want you, I want you to tell me who who said it. Um, Go if on, you can guess. All right, um, cancel culture is driving people from their jobs, shaming dissenters, and demanding total submission from anyone who disagrees. This is the very definition of totalitarianism, and it is completely alien to our culture and to our values. And it has absolutely no place in the U.S. Was it Donald Trump? <laughs> it was. <laughs> His speech on Mount Rushmore. Um, so I bring this up to say that we are, we are uh, you know, um, brothers in arms with great men, uh, UL. We're, we're Trumpists now? Okay. <laughs> we're Trumpists. Well, I actually bring it up, you know, only half jokingly. But I mean, I think to some extent this stuff is fueling, you know, some right-wing backlash potentially. Right. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, Donald Trump would love to run against cancel culture and left wing overreach. And they're trying to tell you what to say and think. And you know why? It's because people hate that shit. Right. Like, I don't think it's going to save them, but I think the political instinct is right. People don't like it. All right. Well, you heard it from uh, Yoel Barr, Mickey Inslicht and Donald J. Trump. <laughs>